Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Mayu Taba and Austin Yay. Mayu, what's going on with you, buddy? Not much, man. Getting ready for a little short, quick trip to Miami this weekend. But uh, so we're shooting this episode or the preamble a little bit early. But um, other than that, man, just trying to stay on top of shit before I go. But what about you? What have you been up to? I don't think I wouldn't say we're filming it early. We're filming it when we're supposed to be filming it. Because sure, usually sure. we do it the day of. <laughs> Sometimes that's why, guys, if you ever see the podcast episode come out at 4 p.m., it's probably because we filmed it at 1 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dude, oh, you know what? Actually, I, I lost out on an offer this week. That was freaking annoying. Okay. There's this bungalow in Scarborough. Uh, yeah. You can probably see it on the market right now. It was like 63 grim or something like that. It, it's the only, if you set your filter on house Sigma to under 800,000, it'll be the only house that pops up. 699 list price. But the house has probably not been lived in for like five, five years, maybe, right? Like you can tell they just cut down on like overgrown weeds. There is no backyard. The backyard is just like dirt and like, like weeds and shit. The wind doesn't need to be replaced. Everything needs to be done. It's a back split. So the basement's not even as big. So I was like, okay, cool. Like 699 list price is obviously a little bit too low. ARV on this thing, maybe a million one, right? As a triplex, maybe a million two max if you stretch it out. I was like, it's going to cost me about like 200 grand to get it there. So I went in and I offered 801, okay? Logic being everyone's going to come in in the 700s. This thing's probably going to sell somewhere in the 800s, but I just want to get invited back to round two for the counters. Um, offered 801, gave them their closing terms, 30-day close, all that kind of stuff. And then they just said, they told us they're going to do a second round. And then they just called us back. And uh, like an hour after that, I go, like one offer just came in and blew everyone out of the water. Like it's, it's a crazy offer. We're not doing a round two. I was like, fuck. Like, I, I imagine that's not like 30 grand over me, right? Oh, no, it's probably at least like 60, 70 minimum. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine it's in the nines, right? And, yeah. and to be fair, like it is a 50 lot house. Like the house itself is small, but it's on a 50 lot, which is good. Mm-hmm. It's the same reason I wanted it, but it's lower in depth. Like normally in Toronto, you get like 120, 125 in depth. Uh, this yeah. is I'm doing in depth, right? So there's no free potential, right? So I'm just kind of like, the fuck happened here? And I don't know. We'll see. I'm going to monitor this market and see what someone else bought this for. But I do know you are buying closer to the million dollar range and refine, I think even higher than a million two. So maybe I'm just uh, being a little bit too conservative, but. That's, that's wild, dude. I put in an offer recently too, but it's on a, an assignment, on a condo assignment. So just to give uh, an idea, it's uh, on King West. King West, it's like a boutique condo, which generally carries more value than those massive like skyscraper condos, more yeah. boutique, smaller amount of units. It was, it's 846 square feet with, parking and a locker i put in an offer at 705k so Not we'll, bad. yeah like pretty low pretty low two bedroom uh one den it's a two bed one den how much did they buy it for they bought it for 690k okay so what i'm gonna do back back yeah i think in 2017 or something like that it's on paper so we'll see what happens i know that there's some interest in it but what I've realized in the assignment market is people show interest, but very few people will put something on paper, especially in the assignment market. What's your, what's your plan for that property though? Like, what would you even do with that? I would move in, live there for a year and then sell it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, you're, when you back out parking yeah, I, and backing out parking at 50,000, which is cheap, right? Like parking should realistically be a hundred thousand area. Yeah. 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 If I'm backing out parking at 50,000 being conservative, I'm still getting it in the mid $700 per square feet which is like, I feel like that's pretty hedged. You know, Hamilton is going for a thousand per square feet for pre-cons. I know it's not, we shouldn't be copying it against pre-cons, but anyway, we're talking about like prime brand new condo in West 30% lower resale than a fucking pre-con in Hamilton. Yeah. I would, you know, it'd be difficult for me to imagine where the market gets that bad. And if it does get that bad and where things are $700 per square feet, all of the developers are fucked anyways. All the developers are fucked. People who are doing fiveplex conversions are fucked. Everyone's fucked if it touches 700 square feet in prime Toronto. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, I mean, ultimately the supply side would tighten up until the price can go back up and and can support new construction, right? Right. 
Uh, one of my clients had a had a similar kind of ish, ish deal from like 2018 that the, that the guy was uh, trying to assign for basically like 30, 40 grand over what he bought it from in 2018. It was a condo town and I don't want to the city and stuff just in case other people find it and buy it because this guy, I don't think he's bought it yet. But it was solid prices, man. It was like a condo town and stuff. For like I think it was like 600 and something and uh, like, like it's still GTA, but not Toronto. So I mean, mm-hmm. well, you know, well, there's definitely deals, but I struggle with, what am I going to do with this property, even if I buy it, right? Um, you have to, basically, the game plan is a live-in plan, right? Yeah, like you'd have yeah, to be willing, willing to live there and then exit out in a year. Yeah, you're willing to live it. I think that makes that the difference. You know, it's like, I, I think my wife would kick my ass. <laughs> but I told her, you know, let's move back to Toronto for like a year. We'll be back soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. It, it's not a strategy that works for everyone, but I think it aligns well with my lifestyle. I wouldn't mind going back there for another year and then, and then sort of exiting after. And even if yeah. the market gets a lot worse. I don't think you can get that much worse where you're looking at inventory at that price. Outside of that, um, I don't know. Did you see that HSBC article about the fraudulent yeah, yeah, the yeah. fraudulent loan? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it exists. That HSBC article, I think, is painting a really poor light for the Chinese community, right? But I think it exists in every community. I don't think any community is, any immigrant community especially, right? Um, it, it, you know, I know, I know you probably know some, some brown people who are hundred percent, right? Like, I know, I know some too. Yeah. <laughs> this is the issue, right? Like when you're a new immigrant, it's kind of like, what do I have to lose? Right. Either I set up roots here or I don't. And if I don't, and if going back home is not the worst option in the world, like if you're not going back to like a war-torn country, like then they're willing to take on risks that like we are just like, yo, we're, we'd be crazy to take on that level of risk because. You know, you're talking about like being stuck with that kind of on your burden for like 40 years and you talk about breaking the law. <laughs> What's that? You're talking about breaking the law. Yeah, I know. But like a lot of times like I call it crime just means like, you're not, you're not really going to jail. Right. But still, like, even if you have like that kind of record on your, on your name, like you're not doing jack shit else. Right. For a while. So, you know, they're willing to risk it. Um, but I, I don't know what's the significance of like that. He's just PT. Um, article. Like, is it actually significant or is it just like, it's, I mean, it's probably things that we have known about for a while that is not exclusive to HSBC. That is yeah. probably the case for a lot of banks, right? Yeah. But there was an individual who worked at HSBC, who really? studied their undergrad in UBC about like mortgage fraud and how to identify, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So then they worked at, I believe somewhere in Aurora maybe, uh, where volumes were typically a couple million. And then the pandemic hit and there were all of these Chinese people buying and their volume shot up to like 80 million from a couple million. So it spiked up. I, I'm sure like probably every branch outside yeah. of HSBC got spiked up too, just because the market was ripping. But essentially he was looking at, he or she, whoever, were looking at loans and finding that a lot of the like Chinese people who live here, but maybe they're originally from China or they have like sort of connections in China yeah. were frauding all of their income. And there were a ton of red flags that were easily able to be caught, but people just sort of shrugged it off. You know, like it was very evident that these files would not sort of, if the governing body saw it, they'd be like, Hey, but you know, you got to flag this, there's something not wrong with it, but they were funding it. So like all of these, like, and, and the worst part is, is that like these people don't even have jobs, right? Like they, they probably have caring. a lot of money. But but they're carrying the debt somehow. Like you're not seeing a, a whole lot of like foreclosures in like Markham and like Richmond Hill, like predominantly like uh, Asian communities, right? Like you're not seeing those foreclosures. So I don't know where they're buying the properties. Let me make that clear. But it yeah. is investment properties that they're they are buying. Uh, who knows? Maybe there is some foreclosure if they're buying a significant amount of cash. Maybe there's not. Yeah. But there is fraudulent income. They're saying that because of the pandemic, they're able to lie and say that they were working in China, but working from Toronto. And then all of these mortgages got approved. So I think between like literally 10, um, 10 branches of HSBC, and there's not a lot of HSBC branches, but 10 branches in the GTA, they've uncovered like a verified $500 million in mortgage fraud over just 10, right? Which is half a billion. Cause you can only imagine how much more there is than that. But that being said, I mean, it's nothing new. Like we probably... I mean, people probably had these suspicions, but obviously there's something a little bit more concrete that's out. Yeah, but I just Googled it. So it's like 1.8 trillion is apparently the size of the Canadian, um, I think it's the total value of mortgage debt outstanding in Canada. So like 500 million is like a drop in the drop in the bucket, right? Like it's, it's a drop in the bucket, correct. But I mean, this is across 10 branches. True, yeah. So you have to, right. you know what I mean. So it is pretty significant. And, and one bank. 
Um, but anyways, like that's, I, I just found it interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot more, we're seeing a lot more headlines on, on real estate investing, the risk of it. We're seeing a lot more headlines on fraudulent mortgages, on housing prices, immigration. There's a lot more pressure to bring housing down, yeah. uh, whether that be prices or rent prices. And this is like another one of these like trending articles that I thought would be interesting to talk about. But should we just jump into today's episode? Yeah, before that, I, I recently hit 40, uh, 49 upvotes on a recent Reddit post. That was pretty fucking cool milestone of mine. <laughs> I, I, I made a comment on, on, on one of these pre-con like, channels and like basically everyone was like, why, why are pre-con prices not like falling for like these developers? It like, doesn't make sense. Because it's true. And you know, going back kind of what we were talking about earlier, people are still selling shit at like 1400 square per square foot, right? And it makes zero sense. And so I just kind of went into this ramble about construction financing, but whatever. And so, so that was another milestone of mine that if anyone wants to go find it on Reddit and give me another Reddit article. or red flag deals? Reddit, Reddit, bro. I'm on Reddit. Okay. I, I stopped going red flag deals now. I should have <laughs> For those who don't know, my search engine is actually Reddit. He doesn't use it. the answers on Reddit. Anyways, enough rambling from us. We're going to jump straight into the podcast. We have a very special guest, very anticipated episode with Michael Walsh. Uh, this episode is going to be all about accounting uh, taxes. As you guys probably know, if you don't follow Michael Watch on Instagram already, you should. Um, but he is a tax expert. He started up his own sort of tax business specializing with real estate investors. But outside of that, he's also a phenomenal investor. We also get into a recent fiveplex that he did, taking it to CMHC for refinance, pulling all of his money out and just catching up with Michael on his different sort of investments that he's doing and different business ideas as well. He's an entrepreneur through and through. You don't want to miss this episode, especially because it's tax season and it's going to be a lot of good tips for you guys to save some money on taxes. And enough rambling for me. We're going to jump straight into this episode. A lot of golden nuggets. If you enjoy the podcast, just a reminder, give us a five-star review, leave a comment, subscribe, do whatever you can to support the podcast and let's jump right onto it. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest. You probably already know him. He was on episode 10, so make sure to check that episode if you haven't. We're here with Michael Watch. Michael, it's been so long, buddy. How's everything going? Awesome, guys. Great to be back. Great to kind of catch up and see what you guys are up to. For sure, Michael. So for anyone that, I mean, you've done a lot. Episode 10 was years ago. I feel like maybe we had you on in between as well, but just in case, like if you were to like summarize the last two or three years, like what have you been working on? What have you been up to? And then just for our, our audience as well, like this, this episode is going to be a, a real deep dive into like the entire world of tax, accounting, audit, or bookkeeping and more stuff like that, right? But just with regards to your own real estate portfolio, what have you been up to? What have you kind of been transacting on? Give us a rundown. Yeah, sure, guys. Yeah, it feels like so long ago. Episode 10. Wow. Um, definitely been enjoying the ride. I left my full-time job a few years ago. Um, been focusing on being a full-time real estate investor. Most of our portfolio is long-term rentals. I love my triplexes. We have some duplexes, a fiveplex, uh, dabbled in short-term rentals. We have a cottage up north that we rent as well. Um, I've been coaching with Corey McKinnon for a couple of years. So really enjoying that. It's a great, um, inlet just to be connected with so many investors in our network. More recently, got really back into kind of headfirst um, into taxes and and doing uh, tax returns for investors. I felt like there's just a lot of us that struggle with getting good advice on the bookkeeping side, tax. As we grow, a lot of people, you know, scale, they set up corporations. So because I'm a CA, CPA, it was uh, a, a kind of easy transition to move from doing it off the side of my desk to really focus on it a little bit more full time. So just Continuing, honestly, to enjoy the ride, provide value. I've been pretty active on social media, mainly on Instagram, attending a lot of networking events and so on. So that's kind of a, my two-minute spiel there. Nice. Yeah, Michael's an easy guy to find around. If you go to a networking event, chances are Michael's going to be there connecting with investors. And uh, yeah, I mean, just uh, that's how we we recently reconnected through one of your stories. You're doing an Ask Me Anything. Uh, about taxes or real estate investing. And I just see whenever you do one of those, like a million people just shoot questions. So you've been doing an amazing job on the socials. We're going to get into that stuff. But from the last time we touched base, I think you're working on your couple of duplex, triplex conversions. Maybe we touched on your fiveplex, but it was just the beginning of the project. 
So would you refresh the audience on what this Fiveplex is all about? When did you buy it? We're, we're jumping straight into the meat and potatoes. When did you buy it? How long that process was to turn around that Fiveplex and sort of where everything ended up? Because I know that project came to a wrap. Yeah, sure. I, I guess I glossed over that one, but it was our first experience with CMHC. Um, in this case, the, the MLI Select program. So when we purchased that Fiveplex, we obviously had plans to burr it, to, to, you know, renovate the units, upgrade the rents where possible. There's five garages on the property. It's in the Niagara region. And so we, we didn't, I don't think CMHC MLI Select in its current form existed two and a half years ago. As we went through the project and we started kind of bringing the building up to its highest use, uh, highest value, that's when we heard about the program, worked with our mortgage broker closely, went through one of the three pillars, the energy and efficiency pillar to hit enough points to land and and, and get some of those good terms, right? So we ended up getting close to 85% loan to value on the refi, the extended amortization, 40 years. And so it's been a good experience. It took a little bit longer. We submitted our application in June of 2023, literally when everybody else is submitting their applications with CMHC. Um, so even though we had approval from the lender that we're working with, you still need to wait for CMHC as the backstop, as the insurance company to approve your file. It was literally like four or five months before a file just got picked up by an underwriter. Anyways, we're at the finish line now. So really happy. You know, I feel like I've been through a little battle or a war. I have some bruises, but I'm coming out alive on the other end with some pretty good terms on a nice asset that I look forward to holding for a while. Did you guys go the uh, affordability in Niagara or did you go the energy efficiency auto approach? Yeah, we did energy efficiency. So it was a lot of like window upgrades, doors, insulation in the, in the walls, a lot of uh, like new low flow flush toilets, all LED lighting, things like that to hit enough points. It was an interesting process working with the energy auditor, basically kind of saying like, hey, what do I need to do to meet the minimum criteria of hitting those those points at the level that we needed to hit? Affordability just didn't work for us and accessibility with the layout of the building didn't yes. really work. So I think most investors here in Ontario have got energy and efficiency. I think if you're in some of these like larger towns with like higher price points where like the rent actually has like a significant range of affordability, doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think if you're in like Windsor, like Longton, you've got like bachelor units in like Edmonton or yeah, Edmonton as well. I think sometimes it makes sense. I'm curious on the energy efficiency, not to spend too much time on this, but how much do you think in ballpark costed you on the energy efficiency side? The reason I'm curious is you're really doing the energy efficiency to get into into CMHC, right? It's not something that we would normally like necessarily do if that product didn't exist. I'm just curious what the cost of getting into that was. You know what? Honestly, in my case, because I had started some of the rentals already before we became aware of the program, we were going to spend that money anyways. It was like 35, 40, 45 grand per unit anyways. So a lot of those in scope items are already there. And then when we, you know, connected with our mortgage worker, hey, we want to get ready for the refi. What do we need? That's when I started really being introduced to that whole audit. And so we worked backwards a little bit, added some additional items in scope. But like I could have done even all of the windows. But at that point, when you're totally finished renovating a building, you don't want to be putting in new windows when some of the uh, units are already tenanted. So Mm -hmm. it was kind of like a meeting in the middle. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask because you've had this project for two and a half years. The program didn't exist. So I was almost wondering, like, I, I didn't know when you bought it, you got the vacancy pretty quickly. So I was wondering, like, how did you even pivot to CMHC MLI Select? Because, you know, I mean, I assumed you were finished the rentals before, but I guess not. Right. I guess you were still going through it during that process, the, the past yeah, two and like, a half years. Consider a little bit of fortunate timing, right? We okay. were just yeah. reaching out to our broker. And I had known about CMHC for like a few months at that time. So it, it just worked out nicely where we literally didn't have to spend much excess money over and above the scope that we already had. And the scope that we decided was like, what's the right level of upgrades for that market? It's not the most right. expensive market. It's a, it's a smaller city in the Niagara region where like you're not getting 2000 2500 a unit. You're getting thirteen to 1500 So we only went as far as we could. Luckily, it worked out to hit the, the number of points that we needed to get the good financing terms. 
Mayu, maybe you should chime into this because we've actually never explained to our audience what CMHC MLI Select is. So why don't you just give my give like a brief one minute overview on what that program is so people know what we're talking about here? Yeah, easier said than done. But it's basically for anyone that does over five units, you're going into commercial mortgage. Commercial yeah. mortgages traditionally have been 75% loan to value or lower with some select products already existing under the CMHC umbrella. And the rates traditionally call it like 7% to 8% range today that we're doing, right? So CMHC came out with this product under three main government focuses. One is to promote energy efficiency. The second is to promote affordability. And the third is to promote accessibility of rental dwellings, right? And an incentive for landlords and existing investors to meet these criteria that the government wanted, they offered up creating for uh, more attractive financing terms. So yeah. one is you get home insurance, very similar to on the residential side, the rate drops, but on the commercial side, it drops quite a bit, like almost like 2%. And then the other side is the ability to go to a higher loan to value. So anywhere from 85 to 95%, if you really meet all the criteria. And the third main attractive feature is an extended amortization anywhere from 25 right. to 50 years. So that's like a crash course, I think, like to summarize in a minute, mm-hmm. obviously a lot more behind it. So don't just assume that you can just go running into the MLI Select program, right? right? It's a really good financing tool to kind of allow people to pull out a lot of their capital and it meets the government's requirements as well, right? So that's really interesting. I think, you know, after the fiveplex, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you bought the cottage after that. And then has the focus really been on the active business side of, of your income streams or um, are you still, aggr- and you went into the business, like you were trying to like buy businesses as well for mm-hmm. a bit. Um, yeah. yeah. Curious what happened there. Yeah. You know what, that, that's the magic of real estate. You get to wear multiple hats. You get to dabble in different things, see what works, see where your passion takes you. So with the flexibility and schedule and location that I've had over the last few weeks, definitely enjoy the coaching. Um, the, the cottage has been a nice property to, to, you know, be a little bit more active in. I consider it like a mini active business in a box. And at the same time, we kind of start asking ourselves what's next, right? What's next in terms of projects or active things that are going to keep us busy. So I decided to go all in on the taxes, but we also, we continue looking at other businesses. And one model that I really liked was things like campgrounds, marinas, RV parks, where you're out of the realm of the landlord tenant board, you still own the land, you can still increase value based on net income, net operating income, similar to commercial apartment buildings. And I just like being outside. Like we've camped and uh, been to many Ontario provincial parks in the U.S. as well over the last 15 years. It's kind of like a meeting place of many things that I enjoy, but also doing business in that area. So you know what? I'm actively looking, still uh, haven't found anything that makes sense, but I do see some of these sellers maybe coming around. A lot of them are just older folks that have owned a piece of land, 10, 20, 30, 40 acres, and they've run an active business on it. And you can see they're, they're tired. So we're going to continue putting out feelers, but yeah, that's been the other uh, thing that we've kind of been dipping our toes into. Have you connected with Andrew Hines on that? He had a recent episode where he was talking about some of the pitfalls and struggles, but he ended up successful with an RBC appraisal at the RBC financing at the end. Have you checked that out by any chance? Yeah, I took him golfing and everything. He's, he's a great guy. (laughs) Him and Jacob and a couple of the other partners there. I really like what they've done with that. I think they have a second one now too. I've definitely connected with a couple of investors that maybe also aren't as active out there, but I know they are in those lines of business. I got referrals. So, you know, just like any new area of investment that you're looking into, you want to talk to the people that are already doing that. So I've definitely heard the good and the bad. My eyes are definitely wide open before jumping into this uh, next step. Yeah, that's the big thing with investors, right? Sometimes we just jump into the things, but it's good that you're doing the due diligence, connecting with the right people. I mean, your experience on the investing side, right? But with uh, with you investors, sometimes you get too eager into things. So happy to hear you're you're doing all of that. I think, uh, my if you don't have any questions, maybe we jump straight into the accounting uh, yeah. side of things. No, I, I think that was a good catch up. You you definitely been up to a lot, and you've tried new things. Um, uh, your your patience on the business side is is good. It's impressive. Like I think a lot of people, mm-hmm. not just investors, like it's so easy to like look at like three or four and like you spend a lot right. of time and effort and then you're just like, fuck it, let me just buy something, right? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's one thing when we do it on real estate because what's the worst case that'll happen, right? Like you still got the property, maybe you don't pull out all your capital. It's a whole other thing when you're doing it on a business where that business 
may very easily be worth a lot, like significantly a lot less, right? Um, so, so Ma, you just, I want to, there's a point you want, you said there that I want to add on actually. So you know how you're saying that uh, people will do three or four and they say, fuck it, let's just buy something. Side note, my buddy's in private equity. I, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this story. He started this search fund. There's a stat that 70% of people search funds, which are people who are trying to find businesses, accumulate capital for that. 70% of them end up failing because they never buy their first business. And there's a good chunk of them as well that end up to your point saying, just fuck it. We need to buy something because their investors are, are waiting for something. So that's no, it's, it's a good point you mentioned there. It's all about the commitment to the process, right? I was thinking about like, even just like from a Mick perspective, right? Like if you raise like $10 million and it's just sitting in the bank, like you have to deploy that capital, right? So like a search fund, right, right. sent you the same thing. Completely off topic from anything that we're talking about here. But uh, Michael, I, like obviously you've moved into the tax and accounting world. We saw the opportunity, uh, a very timely opportunity to kind of drop some knowledge on our guests, um, our, our listeners, sorry, that we think are about like maybe like three to four properties. And usually like most of them have a little bit of real estate. So let's start with this. From your onboarding of clients, what is, would you say like, the most common mistake that people are making in today's world? You know what? It's um, a lot of them have maybe been doing too much on their own. They haven't been working with a bookkeeper or an accountant that understands their needs as a business owner, as an investor in the past. Um, honestly, I've had clients reach out and they're not even sure why they have a certain amount of corporations set up or the role that they're playing in their org structure, right? So. It's just like a lot of those types of things. People are looking for guidance. They maybe see some advice on social media or on a YouTube video and they apply it and they think that's the right thing for them. So I'd say like I often just maybe see people haven't done due diligence or, or asked other investors for enough perspectives before they make a decision on their own. They kind of take the advice of a lawyer where they hear three-tier structure and they set that up or they think like, hey, I should buy all of these properties in a corporation that has to be the right move for me. So yeah, just kind of not knowing what they don't know. That's definitely one of the common things that I see these days. Mm -hmm. What are some considerations that let's say that I'm a new investor, I'm going to you for some tax help. What are some like basic principles that every sort of real estate investor should implement? Like one of them I can think of is having a bank account for each investment property, things like that. What are some basic principles? Yeah, you want to decide how um, how advanced your bookkeeping and your accounting needs are. Some people can easily do the bookkeeping on their own. Others will probably need to invest in a software program. Could be QuickBooks Online, could be Wave, which is a free one, could be anything else, could be one that a bookkeeper recommends because then other investors should have a bookkeeper. They should be paying somebody, whether it's uh, things that they're claiming personally on their personal name or in a corporation. And it's just like too much work for them to try to kind of organize everything, right? So definitely separate bank accounts is uh, is a great one. Um, I think touching base with your accountant periodically, like especially if you have a corporation and it's an active corp because you're using it for tax benefits or you just want to keep income or your properties off of your personal name, touching base with an accountant to talk about, hey, should I be taking out salary? Should it be dividends? What do I need to do if I take out salary right now? What are my responsibilities? Like, I think many accountants or some accountants might not offer that or even suggest it. And if you're only talking with your accountant once a year or your bookkeeper every six months, there's a lot of planning that you might miss there to get ahead of things. I think a great way, if you don't know what you should be doing, is asking those questions to your accountant and bookkeeper or even other investors. Hey, what do I need to do to be an easy client to work with? Like, what am I missing? Is it the way that I send you bank statements every month? Am I doing too many transactions, too many ins and outs? Like, is there a different way that I should be linking my credit card to this account? Whatever it is, right? Those are some things that I would definitely recommend everybody consider. (laughs) Okay. So if we take things from like a beginner's perspective, the first thing, like Austin said, I think is, you know, everyone should have a different, different account or her property, I think it is pretty straightforward, simple one to, to kind of implement, right? And then I'm looking at investors and I'm going, okay, what, what do we deal with? And what are the common ones? This is, I think everyone deals with this. Contractors either want to be paid in cash. They just want to, you know, text you the amount that's owed and you expect payment, right? 
how do you treat that or how can people kind of combat that to like protect ourselves, right? Like if we're just sending someone the other day, someone went to my cottage for, for a plumbing issue and they just like texted me, hey, it'll be 150 for the site visit. There's no leaks, right? And I'm like, oh. So he's expecting payment. There's no real receipt, right? Um, what is the implication for us as investors making that payment? Can we deduct that come year end? Is it basically going to screw us over if we get audited? Like what, what's the implication? Got it. Yeah. You know what, Series definitely doing a lot more audits. That is one of the trends that I'm seeing. If you guys know our government is running out of money, they're in a little bit of debt. So they're trying to find ways to make more, whether it's looking at investors, looking at HST returns, looking at corporations, or then the you and I heard is personal service businesses, which I don't want to get into a rabbit hole there. But to answer your question, Mayu, like best practice, if you have a separate account for every business or every property, and you're correctly paying things out of that account, whether it's a credit card or the debit card, or you're sending e-transfers, that, that just keeps everything so clean. Because now whoever does your books, even if you send all of that to your account and at year end, they'll still be able to kind of put together a nice balance sheet, income statement, statement of owner's equity and so on. If it come, When it comes to cash, like I get this question often and there is a little bit of gray there. Um, and it also depends on your risk appetite, right? Like everybody wants to save money, of course. So obviously if you don't want to pay the HST or you want a little bit of a better price, you're going to ask for that. What's the cash price? Step yeah. one is the money's going to leave your account, right? So you have that there. If you don't get a receipt from that contractor, technically you don't have the receipt. You don't have that proof if you get audited. You could, you know, maybe have a paper trail of, emails. Maybe you have some other evidence to show that, hey, like we planned for this work. I got an estimate for it. I got a scope of work. Obviously sure. getting that invoice is like, is going to protect you black and white. But I do see investors, business owners kind of live in that gray a little bit. So I can't promise you that, hey, if you get audited, some of that extra support is going to stand up. But that's kind of the risk that you take, right? Everybody wants the best price but you also have to be ready and aware of some of the exposure there if you were to get audited. I mean, and, okay. and at the end of the day, guys, like your job, like an accountant's job is not to raise red flags. We want to be as consistent as we can with the info that we submit to the CRA every year. We want to keep you in line. We want to inform you on what the tax rules are. If there's things that are really fluctuating year to year, all of a sudden you bought all of these appliances and you're telling your accountant to claim it as an in your expense versus a capital item. And now you have repairs and maintenance of 12,000 where every year it's 2000 that might raise a flag in the algo, right? So if you're pretty consistent year to year, your chances of getting into trouble obviously diminish. Okay. Million questions we can just jump into. <laughs> I'm going to take it one, I'm going to take a one step back into something that you mentioned early on about like leveraging technology, like QuickBooks, Wave, so on and so forth to organize your books in, in some situations. If you're growing, then you probably need it. That being said, it's one thing to track your expenses. It's another thing to track your receipt. And I think I would argue that's even more difficult than tracking the expenses. What programs do you use for receipt tracking and how do you integrate that with your entire bookkeeping service? Yeah, you know what? I see a lot of different setups. Some people literally file their receipts into folders at home. Some people use shoeboxes. Some take a picture of every single receipt, turn it into a PDF, and they email it to themselves. And then if they're doing their bookkeeping, they will pick up everything in that email at the end of the month or at the end of the year, or they'll give access to their bookkeeper to that email. Other people are using like QuickBooks Online is definitely the most popular one right now. And it seems like there's a different expense tracking, receipt tracking software app coming out every day, every week that people are kind of jumping on. Like Wave is another good one. But at the end of the day, it depends on how much activity you have going on and how much you want to pay for that. Because I know some investors, they're doing developments, they're doing flips, they might be doing the kind of on and off wholesale. They have a couple of employees, they're signed up for the catalog version. They have a corporate accountant that has set up the bookkeeping software and the app directly connected to it. Every single receipt that investor ever comes across, they're having lunch, they snap a picture of the receipt, they buy something at the dollar store, into the app, they never see that receipt again. 
they're paying the most that any investor will pay for that, but that's what they need so they could focus on mm -hmm. their business. So it's really kind of like, uh, you know, like a chart of here's the most manual to as you get more advanced, more electronic, here's the things that I need to do. And it also depends on how much of that middle work you're doing on your own versus if you're okay paying a couple of hundred a month per corporation for a bookkeeper, or if you want to save that and try to do it on your own. And I do have a lot of investors that are on the fence, whether it's bookkeeping or filing their taxes, they're like trying to hang on for their dear life. Like they keep on doing it on their own. And I get questions from those sometimes. And I'm just like, man, I wish you would let go for a little bit of money every year. I think you are missing stuff and you're opening yourself to potential exposure with the CRA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just want to summarize that. So I, it sounds like there's really no one tool or system that you've kind of seen work for people with regards to the receipt tracking process. It's, it's kind of like a constant evolution. And yeah, definitely, I'm a shoebox guy. So um, I, I definitely understand that. And uh, it's less ideal. But, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I think Austin, you use your VA, right? For, for receipts tracking and stuff like that, right? I use my VA. I do what you say, uh, Michael, which is basically shoot it off in an email to my VA and then review it. at should be the end of the month, but it works out at the end of every two or three months. <laughs> but yeah, it's not a perfect system as well. Um, so we're yeah, so trying to get better at it. Yeah, like I, I'm always, I always want to question any client with whatever question they have um, from the perspective of is the squeeze worth the juice, right? I don't want you to set up a process where for 95 or 99% of the investors that I work with, they're never going to need those receipts again. So yeah. I don't care how you get into QuickBooks Online or how you get into your Excel tracker or your Google Sheets, as long as that transaction makes up that expense that you're sharing with me as your accountant in February or March. I don't care what it is. I might have one or two questions for you if I see um, repairs and maintenance on your car or your office supplies is really high this year or another utility that's always really high is now low. I will ask you those questions. We might have to go back to the source receipts, but for the majority of people, once that amount is entered into the right tracking software, you can basically file it away. Very few people honestly ever get audited and ever need to reach back to those receipts. So if you have a shoebox or somewhere where you feel like this stuff will not disappear, you should be good. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one thing, I mean, you've mentioned is, is the auditing frequency picking up. And then you've also mentioned that, I mean, your job as an accountant is to balance the, the risk scale of, of the chances of being audit versus writing off things and reporting things. That being said, I mean, that's a big topic or risk mitigation when it comes to accounting. Everyone would like to write off everything, even if it's legitimate expenses, completely legitimate. Sometimes like, yeah, I could write off 5K more, but if I'm going to spend 10K on an accountant, if I get audited, what the heck was the point of writing off that 5K more? That being said, like, how do you balance the rewards of actually two questions? What do you choose what to write off and what to not write off in, in a real estate investor's business? Right. And then also. How do you sort of balance the scales of, is it worth writing this thing off or there's a chance that we might get audited? Like, how do you, how do you balance all of that as well? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a great question. Like in the tax world, there are always going to be gray areas, especially when you talk about self-employed people, realtors, mortgage workers, you see it often with my construction clients, right? Somebody will have a year where they made a hundred grand and they have let's say 80 or 90,000 of true expenses, right? They just had a lot of expenses that year or they underquoted a couple of jobs. But every year we've been claiming 50,000 of net income for them, 40, 50, 60. And now for us to claim 10,000, I don't know. Is that something that we want to be doing or do we want to maybe not claim all of those expenses, keep things consistent? You're also considering what they're going to need things like that for qualifying purposes, for credit, for, for mortgages, credit cards in the next year. If you show somebody with very little net income, that's definitely a consideration, right? So at the hey. end of the day, I'm always making sure that I'm abiding by the tax act, right? Like you always got to make sure that you're aligned with the rules, but there are some options that you can lay out to your clients saying like, hey, here's what I suggest that you think about in terms of writing off this or this or this. Like in terms of... um rental properties every year it's like the same four or five main expenses yep. right you're gonna have mortgage interest property taxes repairs and maintenance 
insurance, maybe property management and utilities. Like those are the main ones. So if some of those are fluctuating, I might be okay with that because like you have all those receipts, you can explain it. What you don't want to be doing, Austin, either on the rental property front or as a self-employed person is be doing that year after year after year, claiming literal losses, right? Because now the CRA in the letters that they're writing in those auto letters where you will need your accountant's help in most cases to respond, they want you to prove that you had an intent and a goal of actually showing a profit. Well, if it's your third or fourth year in a row of claiming minus five, 10, 15,000 loss on the personal side, you're literally getting refunds every year. That's kind of a hard case to make. So you really need to be in line with your accountant and you need to understand each other's kind of appetite there to make sure that you're keeping everything above board and having the right balance. Oh, dude, I got audited in 2019. Um, And yeah, like they wanted me to go through every, it was like a five pager. And that was one of the questions. I was like, holy fuck. I ended up spending, only had like four properties and I ended up spending thousands of dollars on an accountant and having to give an extra 2000 bucks to the CRA. I think they wanted an extra 10 to 15 grand so it worked out better but dude that the amount of stress there was uh pretty nobody pretty likes an audit and you no. know what like most tax returns I, i'm gonna generalize here but most rental properties that i've seen over the years i typically let's say there's four to seven thousand of mortgage interest on those tax returns for for each property this is very general right i bet you we're going to be seeing double that this year for 2023 people have paid 10, 15,000, maybe more just in mortgage interest. That's going to probably put you into a lost position. Just that one expense line alone, man, like you really want to be reviewing your submissions with a fine tooth comb to make sure that you're comfortable with that submission in case they really roll out the otter red carpet next year. Isn't it? Interesting. So I guess, let me ask you this then, because is it a lot more like strict once you incorporate it versus... If you're just taking everything personal, like it could all just be a one big funnel, as long as you get your top line revenue number correctly, your expenses, you can kind of filter through at the end versus I think once you're incorporated, it's like, oh, I paid for this on my personal account, but like it's for the business and then the business paid for this, but it's for me personally and vice versa, <laughs> right? Like it just seems like there's a lot more red tape. That's probably the word. Once you're incorporated, right? Is that the case? Do you think like, I, I guess then the next question is at what point should people incorporate? Yeah, for the first answer there, in terms of tax strategy and what you can expense, what you can write off, or the probability of an audit is virtually the same. Like an expense is an expense. If you own an active business, whether you claim it on a T2125 or your pers- on your personal return or on your corporate T2, the chances of you getting audited are virtually the same. You can write off the same expenses. Like there's no it is a, a misunderstanding investors, entrepreneurs have that, hey, when I incorporate, I can now claim all these other items. No, like you you can still claim a portion of your office. You can still claim rent. You can claim a portion of your car that's used for business, right? It's all the same in the in the personal name. And um, sorry, what was the second part of that? I guess, so then at what point do you, do you usually recommend people incorporate? Yeah, so it, it's a bit easier to answer on the active business from maybe I'll start with that one. And honestly, we could spend a long time on this because it's so specific. I hate mm-hmm. being the accountant uh, that, that says it depends. But when you're running an active business and you're making a hundred grand a year and you have no expenses, let's say you're a mortgage broker, or a realtor, or a flipper, and you put that income on your personal return, you're paying tax at your marginal tax rate. A lot of clients I have are generalizing 20 to 35% marginal tax rate. So you're going to pay like 30 grand in taxes. If you put that income 100% without any expenses in a corp, you're paying an active business rate of 12.2%. Up to 500,000 net income, you pay very little tax as long as you leave the leftover, the other 87,800 in the corporation. As soon as you pull that out, you end up paying tax personally, which ends up being the same exact total tax rate. That's how the rules work here in Canada. Had you just earned the whole hundred thousand personally, the only difference is you paid to set up the corporation to get bookkeeping and to file a T2 at year end. When it comes to rental properties, you are once again, paying out your marginal tax rate on the personal side. In a corporation, you're paying the passive rate of income, which is like 50 to 53% 
depending on which province you're in. Where it makes sense is if you feel like, hey, I need a corporation for liability purposes. I have a few people that I've seen, they're going through separations or they're going through some other legal situations where it makes sense for them to only invest and buy things in a separate entity, in a corporation. That Mm -hmm. makes sense. Other people, they don't need all the money to live off of. So they want to do things in corporations because they're going to have money left over. And then what I see selling is, let's say you have an active corporation set up, you're going to keep the profits and you're going to put them into another corporation and then like transfer it tax-free and then that corporation is going to buy assets. You're going to grow your portfolio that way, right? But in terms of when you move to that level, it really, the main question is how much money am I making outside of these corporations once I move things into the corporation or once I start buying or claiming a corporation? What can I live off of outside of that? And then if I pull a little bit of profit from these businesses or properties in the corpse, is that going to allow me to, you know, pay for my car, pay for my mortgage, pay for my trips, for my kids, for my spouse? So it really, like there's a lot of moving pieces there. I think the tax rates are just one part of that equation. The other one is liability. The other one is like, as soon as you start moving things into corpse, my, my, you, you would know better. Like financing becomes a little bit different for you. One person who might want to buy a duplex and a triplex might find it really hard because now they need to buy within the corp because they have way less income on the personal return. Someone that wants to buy a sixplex or bigger will find it easier to have that corp set up and be buying in the corp because the lender probably doesn't care too much about your personal situation. They just want to know that you you are buying a good asset and they're looking at the numbers there. So a lot of moving parts. Is it? It sounds like maybe it's when you have a surplus of like a hundred thousand over like what you need from a pure number crunching perspective. Like if you need 90 grand to live on and if your business is netting a hundred grand, you still need to pull out that 90 grand for like your personal mortgage, your personal property tax and whatever and whatever. Right. But if you like are taking the 90 grand out of the, on your own and then you have a surplus of like another, like a hundred grand or so that's where like that 30 grand tax saving could really apply if you were to leave that in a corp. That's pretty cool. Um, I, you know, I think that's pretty useful. Um, and I've always told everyone as well, like, if you're going to talk to your accountant right after you talk to me, they're going to give you the opposite advice of what I'm giving you. Cause I think the, what's tax efficient and what's financing efficient is usually almost the opposite, right? <laughs> I want to jump in there with the commentary as well. With the corporation, I think a lot of people don't understand, like to my use point earlier and your, your point, Michael, there's a lot more things that you have to consider from not only a bookkeeping perspective, but also you need to issue all three financial statements, right? You need a, you need the income statement, balance sheet. I don't correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure if you need a cash flow statement. Very likely it should all line up anyways, right? They all sort of feed into each other. And it's not as easy as people think. Like if you're just a regular Joe starting a corporation, like, oh, I'm going to do bookkeeping myself and like do these financials. You're in for a rude awakening, right? Because for me, myself, like I have a business background and there are some things that I still forgot. Like when I pay myself a loan, or when I put a loan in the company, I have to track that in a journal entry for my balance sheet, right? And I'm yep, like, holy yep. shit, I forgot about all of these small things that I learned in accounting class. So there are so many small elements that people need to understand before incorporating. If, to your point, it makes sense in some people's situations, but the reality is personal is easier. But again, like if you're growing, if there's liability and other things that you have to sort of consider, then it may make sense to, to incorporate. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a great idea to touch base with more than one accountant, get different levels of advice. I've paid for consulting calls with multiple people as I've been setting up my org chart, right? And now feel pretty good, right? We have a corporation for some active income streams, some corporations for passive investments, kind of keep it in separate buckets. But I definitely never want to push people into creating all of these corporations before they necessarily need it. Because it's like having a baby, you can't put it back in, right? Once you set it up, now you're paying all of those monthly fees. And when you look at the cost of corporation bookkeeping and tax filing for a T2 at your end, you could be at like five, six, seven grand. That's like 500 bucks a month on your cash flow. So you can have a decent property and you only have one or two properties, but you're really losing on these admin costs. <laughs> okay. I mean, you mentioned org chart. I assume, uh, I, I mean, a common org is uh, the three-tiered structure, right? And you mentioned this a little bit earlier. What the heck is a third tiered structure for those who don't know? And uh, is it is it worth it? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And honestly, when I mention org structure, I kind of keep it a little bit simpler because a three-tier structure is just one way that you could create corporations in order to hold your assets and to move money around, right? But in terms of org structure for me, I like when, when you know, my students, uh, clients that I work with are just able to summarize everything that they own and how they own it. So it's like, hey, if you have a corporation, number one, tell me what that corporation owns or what income it claims. Maybe it has two properties. Then you have another corporation. Maybe you're claiming short-term rental income, some flipping or wholesaling income. Tell me what you own in your personal name. Is it you or you and your spouse? Tell me what other income streams you have and where is that being claimed? Like that's kind of my simple communication when I say org structure to uh, clients, investors. I think it's very helpful when you've documented all of your moving pieces in your finances before you sit down with an accountant, with a bookkeeper, with a lawyer, even with a mortgage broker, because you can literally share one document or give them access to a shared drive and they can review it before the meeting and know everything about you. In terms of a three-tier structure, honestly, in my opinion, I think that's a strategy that has maybe gone by the wayside a little bit. I don't see it as popular anymore. Investors are not asking for it and accountants are not rushing to set it up because they've realized like many investors never grow into needing that type of robust structure where you're paying 10 to 15,000 in bookkeeping and accounting fees per year once you set up. But it's basically the thought of like, you set up one corporation that's going to, you're going to every property that you buy in your portfolio, once you decide you want to get into this like scaling, you're going to put them into that corporation. You set up another corporation kind of just to the left of it, if you will, that is your active corporation. It's your property management company. It could be doing rentals for your properties. Yeah. It could be doing other active work, right? And you could use that corporation for other active streams of income, wholesaling, whatever it is. And then you have a corporation at the top that's called like the hold co. And so what you do, like the simplest strategy is you earn cash flow. So you need cash flowing properties, first of all, in your first corporation. And then to reduce some of that income, you have your property management, your active corporation charging a fee, 8%, 10%, 12% per month. So you're taking passive 50% taxable income and making it active income taxed at the low rate of 12.2%. The hope is that you accumulate so much income in your active corporation that then you're able to intercompany dividend it up to your old co to the third corporation that's not doing anything except collecting those profits. And now it's able to recycle, send them back to your real estate corporation, the one that owns the properties. And now that corporation has more down payment, rental money to buy additional assets. That's the goal. Where you kind of run into some issues is when that active company becomes large enough, it now has to collect and remit HST. And the problem with HST is like, you don't have another corporation or it's, it's kind of like now we're getting into the weeds, but you don't have a mirroring HST credit for that HST. So you're kind of creating some extra money that one of your corps has to pay another one of your corps that you have to remit to the government. So it really needs to make sense. You need to have so much activity for you to turn that 50% to 12.2% income money for you to actually benefit from that structure. What I see more often is just investors these days are deciding, hey, I'm going to create a corp or not. Yeah, let's create a corp. Let's put my active income streams in one corp. Let's create another corp for some real estate assets and just kind of like keep it simple for now. And then in every couple of years, reassess if there's anything that I should be changing or doing differently in structure. Awesome. Perfect. No, we're really well said. Um, something I think that I just sort of moving along here, something that I think doesn't get talked about enough. I'm not sure if you would have the answer to this, Michael, um, but sort of uh, tax planning for an estate. Like if you pass away, I heard a story about someone what? who had $10 million in assets, right? And then they passed away, gave it to whoever, their kids or whatever, and they had to pay $7 million in taxes. Imagine working your life to get 10 mil and then the kids only take the three mil, right? So any, any... I wonder why that is though. I don't, yeah. So first of all, can you explain what the hell is going Because I didn't get into it. I just know on a high level, I heard that story in Canada. I was like, holy shit, that is wild. So 
Is that something that people should consider earlier than later? Why is that the case? Could you, could you explain what's happening with this madness? Yeah, I've seen uh, two, two kind of arguments to the whole estate planning, trust planning, and like dedicating time and money to setting yourself up in the most optimal way. On one hand, I see individuals that are trying to put in the most ideal structure that's going to cost like a decent amount of money, but they don't own a portfolio or they don't like they're not clear on where they're headed. And then other people are are doing, you know, at a certain time in their portfolio, they realize, hey, like we're pretty successful. We've grown this thing. Let's really sit down with a lawyer, do this estate planning. Like I think that that second situation probably makes most sense. For, for me personally, honestly, I haven't spent too much time on it in terms of like from our family. I actually think people in general overestimate how many of our kids are going to want to continue owning our real estate. I think what I see more typically is the adults, the people that have built the portfolio end up selling things like slowly over the years yeah. before it ever yeah. gets to the hands of the kids, doing it as tax efficiently as possible and then just giving the money to the kids or like putting that into something safe or something more tax efficient than a, a real estate investment that's going to have capital gains, other business income on it, right? I'm not an expert. I don't uh, claim to be one in estate planning. I have, you know, just seen more people asking about family trusts. So there are a couple of investors in the network that have spent, you know, anywhere from five or 10 to 25 grand to set up like a robust family trust where now you can at certain periods in the future pass on assets to your kids with in a more tax efficient way without having to sell or transfer those properties which triggers a capital gain or land transfer tax again so that's the main reasons why like you want to be talking not just with your accountant but with your lawyer and I'm not that accountant in this case right I know where my powers lie where my strengths are. It's not on estate planning. It is really a specific topic, but you know what? Like it, it is a good thing to consider once you have a lot of stuff going on in your portfolio. And if you have a couple of kids and you want to pass that down, but I, I just, I never want investors to spend so much time thinking about the perfect setup that it overshadows them focusing on their business or their investments. Very interesting. Uh, I can't see how they would end up at seven million on, on in taxes owed on ten million. Because even if you got capital gains on the entire thing and you bought it for like a dollar, and now it's worth ten million, like five million dollars in taxable capital gains times your tax bracket, even if it's like fifty percent or whatever it is now, right? Like that's two point five million. But uh, I guess you never know what the backstory is. Like sometimes, like it's it's worth more and it's over levered and stuff like that. Uh, going back to one thing you said earlier as well regarding the three-tier corporate structure, I have exactly what you talked about. I've got my active corp. I've got different corps for my real estate entities. And then I have another corp that is a management corp. They're not all associated under one holding company at the top, but I could at any point make that pivot to do a section 85 rollover into another hold corp if I wanted to, I guess. Just didn't feel the need, right? Like the reality is with like rates going up so much, like our cash flow is eroding significantly. Right. And so like how much really flows through to the management company at the end of the day is very low. Um, and then the other side of it is I've always just done shareholder loans from my active corp. But for anyone listening out there that's got the active corp that's been doing shareholder loans to themselves or other corps, it was all fun and dandy with low interest rates. But now the uh, prescribed interest rates on these shareholder loans are getting expensive as well. All right. All that said and done, um, to wrap things up here, what's like a tax saving tip for a lot of investors in today's world that you want to share? You know, could be burr. Pro- oh, let's just talk about burr properties in particular because I think a lot of people here are doing burrs. How can we kind of structure things? Whether it's like capitalizing expenses, repairs. Like, is there a sweet spot? Like any kind of tips or advices on that stuff? Yeah, I think like some of the common items, or maybe investors overlook or they're just not aware, are things like travel, um, travel, like landscaping, a uh, portion of your home use or portion of your office anything related to your car, like you need to know what kind of reasonable percentage use for business makes sense for you. Yeah. I wouldn't say there's any like silver bullets, but you want to like things like uh, personal development, any uh, networking events that you go to meals and entertainment, um, harder to do that against just the rental property. But as soon as you're running a portfolio or an active business, obviously you want to be putting all that in 
any like clothing that you're buying to look your best for meetings with clients, meetings with investors, like all of those things need to be considered, right? Capital versus expense, um, that can be a judgment call sometimes. The CRA does have prescribed wording of what should be capital and doesn't help you this year on your taxes, helps you when you sell the property and reduces your your capital gain. But yeah, those are just some of the things there. Um, it really is like tax and looking at returns is, is such a specific item where one of the things that I really enjoy doing, like I, I serve a lot of realtors, I serve a lot of construction people. When I pick up a new client's return and I put in all the info that they shared with me, I can now reach into my mind and know, hey, I've done 20 other returns of professionals just like this. What is this person missing that all those other 19 or 20 had? And then I can, you know, ask that question to say, hey, did you spend any money on parking on the 407? Any of these other items that I know people in your line of work should be claiming. And just on your capital gains point there, I think people do overestimate often how much they're going to pay in capital gains. If you've tracked all of your expenses, like when you bought the property, any big, large additions that you've made to that rental over the years, and then when you sell it, your closing costs, realtor commissions, all of that stuff. At the end of the day, like the capital gains rate, it's, I don't know, I see more often people are surprised how little they pay than people that are shocked by that capital gain, right? Where, where I have seen more sticker shock is on active income, where people are claiming things like personally, let's say, and then they realize, oh my God, I'm in a 35% tax bracket. I've had some people where they are first year active business owners and they created a corporation. Hey, great idea. And they made 100, 150, 200 grand in a corp. But throughout the year, they've been taking everything out, right? Because they needed to, to live off of that. Now the conversation comes with the accountant and they haven't been keeping in touch with the accountant. Now it's January, February and the accountant's like, okay, you know, it looks like you, you're going to owe 40, 45 grand on your personal taxes. They're like, what? What do you mean? Well, in essence, they've made 150 grand on their yeah. personal return because it's all been taken out. They should have been paying tax, you know, every two weeks if you're a T4 employee. Instead, what's happening is they just have to pay it all at once. Now you yeah. kind of get into an issue where you need to make installment payments in the next year. So now you're making 45 grand divided by four, you're paying 12 or 11 grand every quarter. So it just tax planning goes a long way mm -hmm. in order, like how much of this do you need to live off of? Does it make sense to put it all in the corp? Should I keep it in the personal name and so on? For sure. No, I think that was awesome. It was a great episode, Michael. I think, um, you know, just to kind of wrap things up at this point in the podcast, we asked our guests two questions. So the first is what kind of advice do you have for a newer investor just getting started today? It could be tax and accounting and audit and bookkeeping related or just general advice as well. You know what? Never throw out a receipt. Keep everything saved. Um, keep it as organized as possible. Be an easy person to work with. Um, set up a Siri My Account. If you don't have a Siri My Account where it's basically the backend portal for everything to do with your taxes, personal side, you can link each of your corporations in there. You can file things like underused housing tax returns on their HST returns and so on. Definitely stay organized by having an account like that that lets you access what the CRA sees on the back end. Awesome. And for anyone that's kind of been following your journey, like you've come a long way in the last couple of years. So where do you see your business growing in the next two to three years? Business is growing. I, I think it'll just continue being a mix of person of uh, passive and active income streams, right? I uh, I like having long-term rentals, but I'm also lazy, right? Like I want to I want to have a good balance. I think that the goal is to not allow the things that we do here in the investment world to take over our lives. I want to continue traveling, quality time with my family, with my kids, and 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 my wife. So you're probably gonna see me, you know, just I'll let the long-term rentals chug along always on the lookout for the next active opportunity where I can either partner with somebody, set things up on my own and just enjoying this ride, right? It's a, uh, it's a really cool network that we're part of guys like you. So, uh, that's probably what the next couple of years has in store. Awesome. Really appreciate it, Michael. You're always up to some neat stuff. You say this and then two to three years, we're going to hear you say, like, we just bought like, three businesses. We really appreciate all the insight that you've given on this podcast. Amazing episode. I'm sure, like, I got a ton of value from it. I'm sure Mayu did this well. I'm sure our audience did as well. 
it's going to be a lot more questions I'm, uh, that, that you're going to get your way, I'm pretty sure. So stick around for Michael's AMA on Instagram. Um, anyway, speaking awesome. of Instagram, how could people best get a hold of you? Uh, probably on Instagram at Watch Properties, W-A-C-H Properties. You can find me on, on LinkedIn, Michael Watch, uh, Michael without the E, or on Facebook, just under my personal name as well. I'm on TikTok, but uh, still working on that one. <laughs> nice. You got to do some more dancing on TikTok. That's how you yes. go viral. <laughs> Anyways, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, comment, share with the friend. It helps bring amazing guests like Michael on. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all. 